Welcome to the Fitbox Podcast. This is your host, Joseph Frankie. Glad you're here listening. On our podcast, we talk about two main things. First and foremost, we interview members of Fitbox so that way you can hear their stories about how they're repaying debt, how they're saving for retirement, buying homes, all this type of stuff really to give you motivation and some different ideas. That's the first thing we talk about. The second thing our podcast do is we take individual finance topics and go through them in more detail. So that way you can say, does this apply to me? And how does this apply to my plan? So if you have questions or you want to sign up for Fitbucks, you can do so in the show notes, fitbucks.com, build your profile, schedule a call. We'll be talking to you soon. Enjoy the episode. going to happen to the economy when student loans kick back in here coming up in September and October of this year and how to avoid costly mistakes when it comes to your student loans. That's what we're going to be talking about on today's podcast and video. I'm super excited about this one because I'm actually going to be doing it as a quote unquote reaction to a front page article in the New York Times. Not only am I going to be talking about that stuff, but these examples are going to show you exact mistakes things that I've talked to you guys about on last, on past podcasts and everything is going to show you examples of what basically not to do. Okay. Before we jump into it, welcome to the podcast. If this is the first time uh, you're listening, be sure to subscribe. If you're watching it on YouTube, welcome as well. Be sure to subscribe, hit the like button, hit the notification bell. It helps us. When you guys subscribe, you get notified when new episodes come out. Last thing, share this with your friends. If you do all those things, it helps us, it helps you, it helps everybody involved. Thank you very much uh, for joining us today. Um, like I said, this is an article that I'm going to be reacting to, and I'll be talking about how this affects uh, you with the economy and everything else that is coming down the pike. So let me pull up this article again. This is from the New York Times front page of the website this morning. Okay, uh, Title is, Student Loan Pause is Ending with consequences for the economy. And I've been asked this a lot the last couple of days because as you guys know, my backgrounds in investments, I always say about a recession, you know, whenever you have a recession or the stock market plummets, valuations and all these things can be all over the place. They can be horrible. There's always gotta be a catalyst to make the market go down. Is this student loan pause ending that catalyst? Let's dive into this article, okay? so. Basically, it goes through um, and talks about how student loans have been uh, put off for the last uh, three and a half years. And basically, in the article, it states Goldman Sachs that they estimate that about $185 billion has not been paid to the government because of this. Uh, about $5 billion a month is somewhat of what they've been at, uh, looking at in terms of how much it's gonna cost the government. So the way you can think about that is that's $185 billion that is in the economy that's gonna be sucked out over the next basically two or three years. Okay, so we talk about inflation, that 185 billion is adding to that inflation. Now, as you'll see, it's like, okay, well that's 185 billion, but does it really add to inflation and consumers buying stuff? We're gonna talk about that a little bit later on in this article, but let's just keep going down um, in more of this article, okay? Um, it says, emerging research has found that in addition to freeing up cash, the repayment pause coincided with a marked improvement in credit scores, which that's because of cash infusion. 
However, however, it also removed delinquencies from the credit report for student loans, which means credit scores go up, but that might not be a good thing. Why? Because I did, you know, probably two years ago, and I did a podcast that said people, the majority of people are not going to use this repayment pause to take advantage of it. They're instead going to buy more, get more things and get more debt. And guess what? What else did the, the New York Times put out? It let people take on more debt to buy cars, homes, and daily needs using their credit cards. Okay. Raising concern that monthly bills are going to be maxed out when student loans restart. Okay. Now, how much do they get increased? We're going to touch about on that in a minute as well. Now, this is one of the parts where I, I started reading these articles and I'm just like, Ugh. so I'm going to point one of these things out because I've talked about this in podcasts before. Uh, it quotes uh, uh, a woman by the name of Laura Beamer from the Jane Family Institute. I like the Jane Family Institute. I've done some work with them in the past. I know who they are. Um, nothing wrong with them. But I, I, I just want to point out this quote. It says, basically, she's talking about the student loan repayment pause. Ending. She says, it's going to quickly reverse all the progress that was made during the repayment pause, especially for those who took out new debt in mortgages or auto loans. Notice that word, reverse all the progress. Taking out more debt, especially like auto debt and whatnot, that is not progress. That's just going backwards. That's just replacing one debt with another debt. That's not progress, okay? But, when you look at economic people and academics, a lot of times what they're doing is looking at numbers. So they're looking at consumer spending going up. And they're looking at these things like that they're good, like driving stock prices. But that's not necessarily good. Again, it's just replacing one debt with another debt. All right. So anyways, going back, getting back to the topic at hand. Um, let's see what other parts are in here. Uh, financial distress, vastly diminished delinquencies. This is just more information on how much it did. Now, the average borrower, it says, according to this, in 2019, was paying between $200 and $300 a month. So the average borrower, again, that's going to get sucked out of the economy again. Okay. Now, this is where it gets interesting. This is where I say, for those of you that have never been in repayment, you're just starting, maybe you're, you're further along in your life. This is where when I talked about this, about what's the impact in the economy, but also what's going to be, how can you learn from this? This is a perfect example. They give uh, an example of this lady. Her name is Jessica Musilwright. I hope I pronounced that right. Um, if I didn't, Jessica, I apologize. But this is her background. She took on about $65,000 in loans to finance a master's degree in arts administration and nonprofit management. And she finished that in 26 in 2006. Okay. Huh. She then goes on to say when she found a job related to her field, it paid $26,500 annually. I want you to remember that number because then the next line says her $650 monthly student loan installment consumed half of her take home pay. Okay. She doesn't have to pay that because you can qualify for an income during repayment plan. So let's continue. She enrolled in an income during repayment plan. Good job. But with interest mounting, she struggled to make progress on the principal 
By the time the pandemic started, even with a stable job at the University of Chicago, she owed more than what she did when she graduated, along with credit card debt that she had accumulated in the last three years. Well, this is where it gets interesting and they're making mistakes. She works at the University of Chicago. And actually, before I even talk about the University of Chicago, she's on an income-driven repayment plan. So the balance of the loan and what she owes, it doesn't matter. It's going to get forgiven. Now, her big thing is she's got to get ready to pay the tax at the end of it. So that's how she's going to have to figure out how she's going to pay that tax. But the balance doesn't matter. That's number one. Number two, this is the big, big piece. She works at the University of Chicago. The University of Chicago means, and I know this because we have worked with a lot of people that work at the University of Chicago. It is a non-profit. She qualifies for PSLF. So the whole thing is going to get forgiven within 10 years of her working there, and she owes nothing in taxes. So who cares about the principal? Okay, now... I'm not going to talk about the New York Times. You guys have seen posts in the past where I talk about how they put in like propaganda. That's like one piece in there. They're trying to prove a point. There's a problem here. In this case, the example you used, not a problem. Okay. She qualifies for PSLF. The bigger thing that you need to know is that if she doesn't realize that, that's a mistake. That's why, you know, I wish that she does listen to this podcast. That's why she should be reaching out to us at Fitbox to be like, you are missing something here. This should not be a problem. Okay, but let's go on because it also shows what is the problem and whatnot. Okay, let's get into this. It says not having those student loan payments allowed a new set of choices. So instead of saying, hey, I don't have this payment, I should be saving money. It gave her other choices, the New York Times says. It helped her and her partner buy a little house on the south side. Okay, so first of all, they couldn't afford the student loans already. So now they're going to get more debt in the form of a mortgage, and they're going to get more debt in terms of property taxes, and they're going to have to deal with the upkeep on a house. Okay. Next line. They got to work making improvements, like adding better air conditioners to their house. And that led to more expenses and more debt, proving the point they could not afford to buy a house because they can't make the improvements. This is something that I talk about a lot. When we talk about our new AI that shows you how much home you can actually afford, not what you qualify for, because she and her partner qualified for this house. They That's what our new AI is telling people when you can and can't afford it. But if you're also renting, should you still buy or not? We have both AIs for that. Again, if Miss you know, Jessica, because I don't know if I'm butchering her last name, but she came to us at Fitbucks. We were told her, no, you can't do this. Plain and simple, like keep renting and save your money. Okay, now, here goes a quote, because this also goes to show about mindset, right? I want you guys to understand this stuff because I don't want you guys to make these mistakes, you know, because she's now 45. So when she graduated, that was, you know, she was, what, 26 or 27? She's now 45 and she's still in this situation. And I don't want you guys to be that old in this situation. This is what she says. The thing about having a lot of student loans and working in a job that underpays and then also being a person who's getting older is that you want the things your neighbors have 
and your colleagues have. Talk to you. I'm like choking when I hear that, when I hear that, that quote. Two things, okay? First of all, she says, and working in a job that underpays. If you guys listen to the podcast that we put out last week, okay, I brought up and I discussed the, the, the topic about um, that one of the big problems with master's degrees, not having a cap on how much you can borrow, is that it's, it's producing a major oversupply of jobs. Okay, so I don't want people to tell me that there's master's degrees and undergrad degrees that are worthless. They're worth something. It's just that, like in the example I gave in the last podcast, society might say, hey, we need 10,000 of those jobs, but colleges and universities are putting out 100,000 people that, that have a, a degree to do that job. So it's destroying salaries, okay? So when she says, the thing about having a lot of student loans and a work and working in a job that underpays, your job does not underpay. Your job pays you exactly what it should be paying you. Okay. That's number one. I want you guys to think about that for a minute. No matter what profession you're in, it could be OT, PT, uh, pharmacist, whatever it is. Your job is paying you what the market is telling you you should be being paid. And if you want more, then maybe there's other things you can do to increase your income, uh, more studies, whatever it may be, side hustles, whatever it is. But when she's, again, I bring this up because it's mindset. She is, is working from the standpoint of the poor me, the negative outlook. It's like, no, you can't do that. You have to look at it from the positives. Like, I, like her job, she wouldn't have had probably if she didn't have that master's degree. I'm, I'm happy to do it. I'm happy I'm a PT. I like this line of work. Okay. If you sit there and constantly focus on that negative piece of I'm underpaid, you're never going to be happy, which is then the reason why I bring that up is because of her next line. You want the things that your neighbors have and your colleagues have. That's part of not being happy, that negative attitude. You always think that if you buy things that you're going to get some type of notoriety from your neighbors and your colleagues and that they're going to like give you some happiness. But what you end up finding out, you just keep they, they don't do that. So you just keep buying more and more and more. This person, when I hear this, again, I'm going on like a psychological rant on this one. This person's not happy with themselves. That's the problem. So it's hurting her financially because she thinks that if she just keeps buying things, then having what her colleagues have and her neighbors have, that somehow that's going to get her happiness. And instead, it's making it worse and worse. And so this negative attitude, it just comes out like... And just this quote alone, it comes out. And so again, I wanted to talk to you guys about that because this is not something that we do with our AI fit bucks or anything like this. But those of you that listen to our podcast a lot and, and our YouTube videos, you know I talk about mindset a lot. Our curriculum that we're putting into um, universities across the country and different programs, the first hour of that curriculum is all about mindset. This stuff, this piece, like if, if she came to me and I was like just like a, like a counselor. She's like, you know, I want you to, to coach me on my finances one-on-one. -on -one. I'm going to pay you a lot to do this. I wouldn't even talk to you about her money. It's like, you got to get your attitude right first. Because if you don't get your attitude right, you're never going to solve these other problems, period. Okay. 
So that's one of the big things I wanted to point out in this piece. Now, let's keep going on because I don't want to, this is not a mindset episode, right? Like we want to talk about the impact on the economy and, and mistakes, but that is a big mistake that I want wanted to point out, okay? So she said that she doesn't know what her monthly payments are going to be coming up next. She might, she, she might need to cut back. Y- yeah, I, I can pretty much guarantee you that you need to cut back. Okay, now this is where it gets interesting because this is where it starts talking about the impact on the economy. And I'm going to add more light to this than what the New York Times has on here. Okay, it says that 52% of borrowers were in the same situation that she was in 2020, meaning that their balance was going up, which again, that doesn't matter because you're on an income driven repayment plan. It's going uh, to be forgiven anyways. It keeps going on. Okay. Um, Starts talking about some other stuff that I don't even want to touch on, but this is where it gets interesting. It says, economists from the University of Chicago found that rather than paying down other debts, those that were eligible for the pause increased their debt by 3% on average or $1,200 compared to people that were ineligible. So people that didn't have their loans forgiven versus those that are not forgiven, I'm sorry, put on pause versus those that were paused. Those that were paused, their debt went up by 3% on average. Okay. (sighs) Again, I'm just shaking my head. Okay. Put another way. This is what the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which is a government entity, this is what they found. That half of all borrowers whose student loan payments are scheduled to restart have other debts at least 10% more than what they were prior to the pandemic. Now, there are a lot of people are going to say, oh, because that's the pandemic. Um, you know, jobs, blah, 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 blah. There was PPP. There was money coming out. I blame a lot more of it on inflation than anything. But later on in this article, it also says that, well, if student loans weren't paid, pay, like delayed for so long, then a lot of this inflation stuff might not have happened. That credit card debt might not have been there. But that's a whole nother topic. I'm going to keep going on on this because I really want to get to the point about the impact on the economy. The effect that this is going to have for people that were already delinquent is even worse. That population, their increase was over 12% more credit card debt and more than 4.6% more in auto debt. Okay, so those that were already delinquent on their student loans, they went up even more in credit card debt than anybody else and more in loan debt than anybody else. Okay, again, there's not everybody's situation is different, but for the average, for that happening on the average, like I said in the very beginning when this whole payment pause started, people are not going to use this to their advantage. They're going to use it and they're going to replace one debt with another debt. Okay, and that's what's happening. Okay, now the thing is, is that it starts going in more into like the new proposed rules and so on and so forth. It goes into one more example, and, I'll, and I'm going to talk about this example before I go into the impacts on the economy and what you can expect with like the markets, in my opinion. Ending the pause 
is going to put a strain on millions of families. That's what the New York Times start this, starts this paragraph with. And then they give an example. For Dan and Beth McConnell of Houston, who have $143,000 left to pay for their daughter's undergraduate educations, the implications are more stark. The pause in their monthly payments was helpful because Mr. McConnell is now 61 years old and he got laid off as a marine geologist. He's doing some consulting work, but he doubts he'll replace his prior income. The payments are going to be $1,700 a month when they start up in the fall, which I'm assuming that's the standard 10-year plan, which he does not need to go on that either. But he ends this article with this quote. This is the brick through the window that's breaking the retirement plans. And I want to end on this because this is one major mistake. Before I talk about the economic impact, this is one of the big mistakes I see many of you making that, that call us at Fitbucks that we have to go in and say, don't do this. Okay. When it comes to your children's education, I hear a lot of people saying, I want to start saving for it. I want to start saving for a 529 plan, blah, blah, blah. Or I see parents that are like, I already have a kid going into college. I'm going to take a, a parent plus loan. You don't need to save for your children's education and you don't need to take a parent plus loan. Okay. And I'm going to go through, through with you why. First of all, Most people do not have enough money to care for themselves. Long-term care, retirement, all that type of stuff. You need to fund that stuff first. Because at the end of the day, when Mr. McConnell hits 65, 70 years old, no one's paying for that for him. You are responsible for saving that money. And that is it. You have no options. Your kids in education... They do have options. And in fact, some of them might not even go to college. And by the time, like if you're just pregnant now or having a newborn, in 18 years, college might look a lot different. So save for yourself first. That's number one. And then if you have enough money and you want to help your kids out, go for it. But don't take a parent plus loan. Either do it out of cash or don't do it at all. The reason being is because, again, your kids have options on how they fund school, especially for them, undergraduate education. There are so many grants and scholarships. Go to community college first. There's, so, there's no reason why a parent between two kids should have $143,000 of undergrad loan. Like, what, what were, like, anyways, you don't want to get me started. I want to go back to the lesson on this for all of you guys. Save for yourself first. Make sure your retirement, your debt, your stuff is set up before ever saving for a, you know, a, a college education for your children. All right. Now, the impact on the economy. All right. Because this is something that I've seen a lot. People are like five billion a month coming out. And not, it's not just five billion dollars of the economy coming out. It's five billion dollars coming out a month of people that spend a lot of money. Like that or getting into debt, okay? And with that debt, they're buying and buying and consuming. That has implications, okay? There's two implications. One, that money's coming out. Two, defaults might start rising. So we always talk about in finance, the stock market can be overvalued and all that type of stuff for a long time. Economic numbers can be horrible. Doesn't mean the stock market's going to go down. There's got to be a catalyst. Like in 2006, 
Like we saw red flags all over the market and people were ignoring them. The catalyst was in 2007 when mortgages started defaulting and then banks started holding onto their credit and tightening their, uh, their lending standards. And then in 2008 was when it boiled over, but that was the catalyst. This could be a potential catalyst. Okay. Now, do I think it's going to happen exactly this year? Um, primarily because there's some things that I think the uh, Biden administration is going to roll out. So that way people that are in forbearance or that can't make the payments that for a year, they're going to be able to, you know, push this stuff out and it's not going to hurt. So there's going to be some stuff in there that people can do where it's not going to hit them that hard. And I don't think all that $5 billion a month is going to come out boom overnight, like in September or October. But I do think over a year to two years, it will impact the economy. And if we do see a rise in defaults and whatnot, then yeah, you can see a trickle down effect starting in 2024, 2025, you might see something, you know, more hit a lot harder. Again, I, I, I think it has a potential. But at this point, it's one of those things where it's keep your eye on it. But it doesn't mean that the stock, this is going to drive the stock market down. That's just my opinion. If the stock market goes does go down, I think it's a, a number of other things that would make it go down beside like not this. This is not going to be like the catalyst that I'm I'm hearing some people on Wall Street that are like, this is the catalyst to blow everything up, you know, in October and that the market's going to just plummet in October and November and December. It's like, yeah, no, it's not. I, I don't think it's going to plummet. Um, coming up because of this. Now there might be other things coming down, but not because of this. So that's my, my take on the impact on, on the whole student loan starting again. What mistakes not to make, like I said, at the end of the day, when I first started and I was telling you like about her stuff with PSLF and all this stuff, she could have avoided all of this if she just went and got help. Of course I'm biased, go to fitbucks.com and get help, sign up, talk to your Fitbucks coach if you need in-person help, all that type of stuff. It's worth it. Go do it. You know, we have our special right now. It's $18.99 a month. It will be well worth it. So that way you don't end up at 45 years old with your hands in the air saying, oh my God, what am I supposed to do? All right. So I hope you guys enjoyed the podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, I hope you enjoyed the video and we'll see you guys soon.